what are the top three rules for real estate? If you look, I know some of you have, have bought houses, you've looked for houses, you've looked for apartments. What are the top three rules? Number one is what? Location. Number two? Location. Number three? Location. Location, location, location. When you go to Zillow, the website, and you look at a house, it gives you lots of nice pictures, doesn't it, of the inside of the house, and they, and they make them look really nice, actually. <laughs> when, you're, when you're looking at Zillow, they, they, they Photoshop them. They make them look really, really good. And so you look at the pictures of the house, but if you're looking to buy a house, you need to look beyond just the pictures of the inside of the house, right? You need to, you need to zoom out, and you need to look at the neighborhood. You need to look at the location. You need to look at the context of where this house is located. A lot of times, people want to look to see how are the schools in that area, right? How are the schools performing in that area? What's the crime rate in that area? Uh, what are the different amenities? What, are there a grocery store nearby? Is there a Walmart? Is there some other amenity that you want? You need to look at the location, location, location. Or you might say you need to look at the context, the context, and the context. Now, I want you to imagine this scenario, okay? So walk with me, okay? You're in an airport. You're walking through an airport, and you hear these words. That suitcase is the bomb. What do you do when you hear those words? Well, you might look around and try to find the nearest TSA agent, right, to let them know that there's a suitcase and it's got a bomb in it, right? Or, or you might uh, run for your life. You might, you might dive behind some cover and try to get out of the way in case the bomb explodes. But... If you know the context, if you zoom out a little bit and you understand the context of when these words were spoken or how these words were spoken, you would interpret these words differently. And I know some of you know where I'm going if you're over the age of 30. Uh, you, know where I'm, you, you know where I'm going, right? Because, and under the age of 60, I don't know, it's like there's a range. The context of these words, that suitcase is the bomb, were spoken in the year 1995 by an 11-year-old girl who happens to be my sister. And this is a true story. We were walking through the airport, my family walking through the airport, and my sister sees a silver suitcase, right, a silver suitcase that she thought looked cool, and she said out loud, that suitcase is the bomb. And nobody flinched, like nobody looked to see what's happening. Why? Because in the context of 1995, words spoken by an 11-year-old girl, that suitcase is the bomb has a particular meaning, right? It, it means that suitcase looks cool, or that, suit, that suitcase is a nice suitcase. Man, I wish I had that suitcase, right? <laughs> and so, but today, if you heard those words in the airport post 9-11, you might get a little nervous, right? You might turn around and go like, what, what? And then you're like, oh, okay, okay. Somebody, some 40-year-old uh, thinking that a suitcase looks cool. That suitcase is the bomb. Our understanding of it, our interpretation of it depends on what? The context, context, context. Or you could say the location, location, location. Now, this is also true in Scripture, Okay, this is also true in Scripture. There are so many misunderstandings. There are so many misinterpretations resulting from taking a verse out of context. 
that suitcase is the bomb. Misinterpreting that, diving for cover, right? And so we do the same thing with the Bible. We do the same thing with Scripture. And I want to give you a couple of examples real quick, all right? And then we're going to come back to these later. I know you've heard this before. Don't judge me. The Bible says, judge not. Right? Okay, here's another one. You can't really trust rich people because the Bible says money is the root of all evil. You've heard that one before, right? You can't trust rich people because money is the root of all evil. One more. You will find success. You will find happiness. Why? Because the Bible says all things work together for good. All right, now all three of these are examples of verses that can easily be taken out of context. And we're going to come back to those in just a little bit. But the big question for today is this. How can we study the Bible for ourselves? Like, do you have to just depend on a preacher to, 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 to understand the Bible? And the answer is no. You don't. God has given you the ability to read the Word of God for yourself, to read the Bible, to understand it for yourself. And we're going to spend the next 10 weeks this summer really digging into this methodology that we've talked about for a couple of years now called comma. You guys remember comma? Raise your hand if you remember comma. We use it in our, in our house church. We use it in our, uh, in our growth groups. Comma stands, it's an acronym. It stands for, what's the first one? Context. Context, 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 right? Location, location, location. O, observation. What does it say on the surface? M, the meaning. Good. What does it mean? The second M, you may not know because I added it. It's main idea. Okay, what's the main point? What's the main idea of this? And then the A is what? Application. So what? How does this apply to my life? Okay, so for the next 10 weeks, we're going to spend two Sundays on each one of those uh, points, comma, all the way through. We're going to work through it. This Sunday, we're starting with context, and there's two different types of context. Two different types of context. The first one is the context of the words, the words on the page, okay, the context of the words themselves. You might think of this as the literary context, or you might think of this as the grammatical context, but it's basically just the words, okay? The second type of context is what I will call the world, Okay, you got the words and the world. So what, how, what, what was the world like when this was written? Right? And that, that, it's like going back to, we had to go back to 1995, right, to understand that suitcase is the bomb. And we have to go back to whenever the Bible was written along our timeline to understand something of the history, something of the way the world was when these things were written. So next Sunday, uh, Joel is going to preach and teach us about the world context or the context of the culture that the Bible was written in. Okay, it's going to be very interesting. Um, but this Sunday, we're just focusing on the words themselves. Are y'all cool? Y'all with me? All right, so the question is, how can we study the Bible for ourselves? And our scripture that we're going to first turn to is Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. I'm just going to read verse 11. We read the, the context earlier. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is on his missionary journeys. Can anybody point to me where on the timeline Paul's missionary journeys are? Right here? Is this it? Am I at the right? Yep. The missionary journeys, right? Paul's missionary journey. Now, one of these books should be Thessalonians. Do you see it? 
Okay, so one of the places Paul went on his missionary journey was a place called Thessalonica. And uh, props to Joel for pronouncing that word correctly earlier. Thessalonica is right here. And so Paul wrote his letter to the Thessalonians. One of the other places he went was in that neighborhood, and it was called Berea. Okay, and so that's what we're going to read in verse 11. It's because Paul got, Paul got run out of Thessalonica, right? He got run out because he was preaching the word, and they did not agree with what he was saying. Because they were saying there's another Caesar or another king, and his name is what? Do you remember? Jesus, right? And so they were offended by the fact that he said there's a, there's a king named Jesus, and he's not your Caesar. Right? They were offended by that. And so Paul comes in, and he, he gets kicked out of Thessalonica. He goes to Berea, and it says in verse 11, Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message... The message about who? Jesus. They received the message with great eagerness. And look at this. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And so these Berean Jews went to the word of God for themselves. And they read it for themselves. They didn't just accept what they heard on YouTube. They didn't just accept what they heard on TikTok. They didn't just accept what they heard from the pulpit on Sunday morning. But they went to the Word themselves, and they examined it. Do y'all see that? They examined it. They didn't bring their own interpretations to it. They read what God had said in the Bible, and they examined it for themselves. They pulled out of it what is God saying. All right, that's so important. And we can do the same thing. We should do the same thing. Don't just rely on teachers. Examine these things. Even the Apostle Paul was getting checked by the Berean believers. Even the Apostle Paul was getting checked. Okay, so, so we need to open our word and we need to examine the scriptures for ourselves. I want to give you four tips as we, as we begin this common method of context. Four tips for understanding the Word of God in context. All right, here, and if, you, if you want to write these down, write these down. If you don't write them down, I'll try to remember to send these out on, uh, on our group, Faith Life group. The first one is this. This is probably the most important tip I can give you, okay? Use a modern translation of the Bible. Use a modern translation of the Bible. Now that might seem obvious to you, okay, but here's the thing. The Bible was originally written in foreign languages that we don't know. It was originally written in the languages of Hebrew in the Old Testament, in Aramaic, some of it, and it was written in Greek in the New Testament. And so if you open your Bible and all you see are letters that you don't understand, then you have no way of understanding the Bible, right? And so we have English translations of the Bible. There's translations of the Bible into pretty much every language in the world, which is incredible, that biblical scholars have taken the words of the Hebrew and the Greek and translated them into our language, the language of the people. And so use a modern translation. Um, there are two main types of translations. All right, now I'm getting a little deep here. Okay, y'all ready? There's two types. One type is called a word-for-word -word translation. What I'm holding right here is called the English Standard Bible, or the ESV. 
And the ESV is a word-for-word English translation. So it's basically taking the Hebrew words and just translating them into modern English. Taking the Greek words, translating it into modern English. A couple of good translations of modern, modern English translations I would recommend are the ESV, of course, that's what I preach from. The NIV, y'all know the NIV, that's a good one. The New American Standard Bible is a good one. And there's a new translation called the Christian Standard Bible. That's also a good one. Okay, and there's others too. So if you're like, hey, he didn't mention my, my Bible, come up afterwards and ask me about it. And I'll, and I'll tell you if, if I think that's a good translation. Because we need a modern translation. Now, you might be thinking, what about the King James Bible? Okay, and I will say it this way. The King James Bible is a word-for-word translation. It is a word-for-word translation, but... It was written in a language that we don't speak anymore. It was written in a language that now is 500 years old. Almost 500 years old. It's English, but it's old English. And so the reason I do not recommend using the King James Version for, for study is because it is prone to misinterpretation. Because, simply because it's written in a language that we don't know. You don't, you guys do not speak old English. You speak modern English. That's why you need to use a Bible that is written in modern, that's translated in modern English. King James is prone to error. Okay, now, here's my caveat. Okay, my caveat is the King James Version is beautiful. (laughs) Okay, It's it's, it's a really beautifully written version of the Bible. It's melodic. It's got a pacing that is familiar and comfortable to a lot of people. And so I would say, read the King James Version for your devotional reading. You know, for just, if you just want to sit down and read the Word, the King James is fine for that. Read the King James. But if you're going to study the Bible, if you're going to do the things that we're getting into this summer, if you're really going to break it down, then I don't recommend the King James. Okay? I recommend it for reading, but not for study. I hope that makes sense. There's other versions of the Bible, other other versions of the Bible that are translated differently. They're not word for word, they're phrase for phrase. And so rather than taking a word and translating it, they take an entire sentence and translate it. And a lot of times they do that because they want it to really flow in modern English. And so you've heard of the message translation, right? Or you've heard of the New Living Translation. These translations are phrase for phrase. That's why they're so different. If you, if, you, if you put it next to an ESV, you're like, wow, these are really different. The reason is because the translation philosophy is different. They're not doing word for word, they're doing phrase for phrase. And so when you take an entire phrase, there's a lot more flexibility with how you, with, with how you translate it. And so I would actually call the message, the New Living Translation, they're not really translations, they're paraphrases. Okay, they're, taking, they're taking the word and they're making it real easy to read. These are great for just reading through the Bible. If you're going to try to read through the whole Bible, I would recommend reading the New Living Translation or reading the message even, although it's even more of a paraphrase. Uh, there's another translation called, that's new called the Passion Translation. Some of you are familiar with that. I don't recommend the Passion Translation. It's a paraphrase. Okay, it's a paraphrase, just like the message, just like New Living. But the Passion Translation actually takes a little more liberty, and it actually adds 50% more words to the Bible than are actually there. 
50% more words to the Bible. And that's, that's more like a commentary on the Bible and not the Bible itself. So if you want to read the Passion Translation, think of it as this is somebody's interpretation of the Bible, not the Bible itself. Okay? So you can use it, but just know it's not a translation. Even though it's called the Passion Translation, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. And it's kind of more of a commentary than a... All right. Who did I lose? Raise your hand honestly. Did I lose anybody? I lost Chelsea. Okay, a little bit. All right. I knew that was going to be a little deep. All right. Let me keep going. That's the first thing. That's the most important thing is use a modern translation. The, the next three points are also important. When you're going to study a verse, like let's say you want to you study uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, before you do that, the next, the next tip is that you should read the entire book first. So don't just go into a verse and just read that verse, but go back and read the entire book. So if it's Romans, read all of Romans. Read Romans 1 all the way through 16 before you begin to study. Now why would I say that? Because you need to know the context. Because if you pull out one verse and you don't know, you have no idea what came before this and what came after this, then you're more prone to misinterpret it. You're more prone to take it out of context. So I would always recommend start by reading the entire book first. And read it a couple of times. Or listen to it on audio. Listen to the whole book. Then do your Bible study. Okay, so that's the, that's the second tip. The first tip, use a modern translation. The second tip, read the entire book first. The third tip is to choose a manageable passage. So when you're going to choose a passage to look into, to dig into, don't do a whole chapter, okay? Choose something more manageable. Maybe a verse, or maybe three or four verses. Maybe a paragraph, probably at the most, okay? But pick something that is manageable. And then when you come back to it tomorrow or, or the next week, then take the next part of it, okay? But choose a manageable passage. So number one, use a modern translation, modern English. Number two, read the entire book first. Number three, choose a manageable section, a manageable passage. And then number four, always read the passage in context. Always read it in context. So if you read a verse, always zoom out, right? Location, location, location. Always zoom out. Go back to the beginning of that paragraph. I showed you earlier how there's headings, right? Headings in there. Go, just go back to wherever the next heading is. In, in there. You just look and see where's the, where's the heading. Go back to that heading and start reading there, okay? Because what that will do is it will help you find the, the, you will help you read the passage in context. How does this verse relate to the surrounding words? How does this verse relate to the sentences and the paragraphs that, that are around it? So it's very important to do that. Read the passage in context. Four tips. Number one, use a modern translation. Number two, read the entire book before you start studying, all the way through. Number three, choose a manageable passage, something you can really get your hands around. Number four, make sure you read the passage in context. Okay, and I could add one more to this, which is read the whole Bible. <laughs> okay, why? Because every scripture is in the context of the whole Bible. Okay, it's in the context of the book, but it's also in the context of the 66 that are right here in front of us. 
Okay, it's in the context of all of this. That's why I pointed out Thessalonica is over here, right? Because this is where it is. But it's in the context of this huge story that God is telling about redemption, about Christ. All right. Now what I want to do is go into some application. And I want to just take these three verses that I mentioned earlier and kind of break them down briefly. Okay, break them down. And let's see, how can these be taken out of context and how can we understand them in context? So the first one is Matthew 7, verse 1. You can't judge me. The Bible says, judge not. I've heard this one a thousand times, right? Don't judge me. The Bible says, judge not. Okay, let's look at it. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7. If you've got your Bible, please open it up right now. I want you to look at it with me. Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to turn to it in my Bible over here. Matthew chapter 7. This is why memorizing the books of the Bible is very helpful, because then you can find it more quickly. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Y'all got it? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It begins, and it says, judge not. Now, if we stop there, we can interpret that however we want to interpret it, right? But let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. It says, judge not that you be not judged. Okay, let's stop right there. It says, judge not, and then it gives us a reason that you be not judged. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean God is going to judge me if I judge others? Maybe. Maybe that's what it means. There's a reason attached to this. Let's, let's keep going. Let's read some more context. Verse 2. So I'll start with verse 1 again. Judge not that you be not judged. Verse 2. For, now for is a connecting word, right? It's letting us know that what just came before, I'm about to explain it to you. For, with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That fills it in a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, already you can see Jesus is not just saying in general, do not judge. He's got something very specific in mind here. And what is it? Anybody, anybody know what it is? Starts with an H. Hypocrisy. Yeah, that's what he's talking about. He's saying don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. He's talking about being judgmental, which means that you are focused on everybody else's sin and you don't even see your own stuff. Right? That's what it means to judge. That's what he's talking about. He's saying it's the kind of judging where all I see is other people's issues, other people's problems. Go to your Facebook feed and you will see an example of what Jesus is saying. Judge not, right? It's hypocrisy. It's when all I see is other people's issues. All I see is my spouse's issues. And I don't see my issues. 
And Jesus addresses this. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye or your sister's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your eye? Imagine, you you can see the little thing over there, but you're blind to your own issues. And so when Jesus says, judge not, he's not saying you should never judge someone. Okay, because look, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, then you will see clearly to what? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's saying there is a time to tell somebody you got an issue. There is a time to call out sin in another person's life. But Jesus says don't do it hypocritically. He says the way to do it is by first take the speck out of your own eye. You see, that's what he means by judge not. He means don't be a hypocrite. In fact, I studied the Greek on this because I was curious. And if you know Greek, which hardly any of us do, Joel knows a little Greek. If you know Greek, you know that the word hypocrite actually has the word judge in it. Hupokritos. And kritos is the word judge. Okay, and so he's saying judge not. He's saying don't be a hypocrite. Don't judge others. Don't be so focused on other people that you don't see your own mess. Okay, that's what this passage is really about. And look, if you miss this, if you think it's about not judging people and you go around like, no, I'm not judging people. I'm not judging them for what they do in their bedroom. I'm not judging them for what they do in their house. I'm not judging them for what they do in their country. If that's your attitude, then you've completely missed the point. The point is don't address other people's issues until you've dealt with your issues. Until you can see, I'm a sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. You know, I'm the one who is the biggest, the biggest sinner in the room. Then you can say, hey, you know what? I see a speck in your eye. Can I tell you about that? Can I tell you what God has to say about that? Look, I see my, I see my mess. I see how I've fallen short in this area. Can I share with you what God has to say about this issue? You see how different that is? That is not being judgmental. That's loving your neighbor. (laughs) That is loving your neighbor. Jesus says, judge not. What he means is, don't be hypocritical. Let's look at the next one. The next one is, you can't trust rich people because money is the root of all evil. Let's turn to it. First Timothy, go to the right. First Timothy now, where is 1 Timothy on our timeline? Over here, right? So, do y'all remember what was happening right here? It goes down. Do you remember what happened to Paul? He was in prison, right? And so these four letters were written in, while he was in prison. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, right? And so these were written after he got out of prison, but he was still living in Rome, and he was near the end of his life. He could see the, the final curtain call was on its way. And so he wrote these letters to young pastors. And so that's where 1 Timothy uh, falls into, into place here. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. Money is the root of all evil. Verse 10, what does it say? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith 
and pierced themselves with many pangs. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, what's the first thing you notice in the context? Is it, is it money that's the root of all evil? No, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, right? And you wouldn't know that if you just heard people uh, talking about it on the street, right? Because you would think, oh yeah, money is the root of all evil. Rich people are evil, <laughs> right? But if you go to the Word and you actually look at the context, you don't even have to go far. You just look at that verse, and it says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money, y'all. Money is not the problem. God's good gifts are not the problem. Food is not the problem. Relationship, sex is not the problem. It's the love of those things. It's when those things become God to us. Right? It's when money becomes my salvation. That's the, that's the root of all kinds of evil. It's when it takes the place of God. That's when it becomes an issue. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. What's something else we can learn from this context? Let's look carefully at the words. It says, for the love of money is a root. Is a root. So what does that mean? Yeah, there's other things that can lead you down a path of death and destruction, right? Not just money. It's a root. And so if you just read it in the context, you read what the Bible actually says in a modern translation, a faithful modern translation, then you will understand what God is saying to us. He's not saying money is the problem. God is saying to us, it's the love of money that's the problem. It's the love of money that leads us down this path of piercing ourselves with many pains. There's so many rich people who live miserable internal lives because they, look, they may look toward money to be that issue for them that's going to give them life, that's going to give them meaning, that's going to give them happiness. But it's not just the rich, is it? No, we all are guilty of that. That money or any other good gift from God can become the thing that we replace God with. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and if we zoom out even further, we see something else. This is, kind of, this is like if you read the whole book, you, you might see this, okay? Back in chapter 3, and I've got a slide for it. Back in chapter 3, but I didn't write it in my notes, so I've got to turn to it. Um, chap, back in chapter 3, uh, what verse was that? Verse 3, uh, Paul is telling Timothy, this is what we need leaders to be like in the church. This is what we need our leaders to be like, our overseers. And he says in verse 3, He must not be a drunkard, nor violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, and not a, what? Lover of money. And you know how many church leaders we have that are lovers of money, right? I mean, just look at the headlines, and you'll see it all over the place. we got leaders who aren't paying attention to what God says to the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that a leader should not be a lover of money. And that word is the exact same word, it's lover of money, that it is in chapter 6, where he says, the love of money, or lovers of money, is the same word. So leaders should not be lovers of money. And then back and in chapter 6, he fleshes it out a little bit, and he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's led many to a path of destruction, piercing themselves with many pains. I think he might be talking about church leaders, 
who have let money destroy their lives because they look to it instead of looking to God as a source of salvation. Isn't this cool? It's cool, right? All right, let's do the last one. The last one is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All right, now if I didn't meddle with you before, I'm probably going to meddle with you a little bit this time. Romans chapter 8. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We had an entire sermon series that was based on this verse. It's called Together for Good, and it was about the book of Romans. So uh, Romans 8, verse 28. Uh, A lot of times I hear it this way. People will say, things are going to work out for you. Everything's going to come together. You're going to find success. You're going to get well. You're going to find a man. You're going to find love. You're going to find happiness. You're going to get out of the hospital. Because the Bible says all things work together for good. Okay, now let's look at the context. Okay, let's look at the context. Chapter 8, verse 28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what's the first thing you noticed? What's the first thing you noticed about this? When we just read the whole verse, the whole context of, the, of just that verse, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What, what do you notice off the bat? Who it's for, right? Who is it for? This is not a promise to everyone in general, right? This is a specific promise to those who what? Love God and are called according to his purpose. Okay, so that automatically lets us know that you can't say this verse of everybody in the world. You can't just go around and say, hey, God's going to work it out. (laughs) God doesn't promise to work it out, not in this verse. But he does promise to work all things together for good for who? For his people, for his children, for those who love him and are called into his family. Right? Okay, so that's who he's talking about. He's talking about believers. He's talking about us, those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Let's keep reading. Because this is where, this is where we have to read the context. The question I have is, what is the good, right? What is the good that God wants to work for you and me? What is that good? Is it a bigger bank account? Is it a healthy body? Is it love and romance? Is it children who obey me? (laughs) Is it a better job? Let's keep reading because he's going to answer the question. I'm going to read 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose for... See that word? For means he's interpreting for us what he's just said. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his own son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and so what is the good that God promises to work in your life 
He is going to conform you to the image of his son. That's what he promises. And brothers and sisters, if we don't read the context of Scripture, if we just accept what the YouTube preacher tells us, <laughs> right? God's got, a, God's got wealth for you. God's got riches for you. God's got health for you. Uh, where does the Bible say that? Not Romans 8.28, because Romans 8.28 says God is the good God is bringing into our lives is that He's conforming us to the image of His Son. He's making us like Jesus. He's taking you like clay and molding you through the difficulties of life, through the lack of a man, through the lack of money, through the lack of health. Molding you into the image of His Son. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And y'all, that's Christianity. Christianity is being molded into the image, conformed into the image of God's Son. So that we could be brothers and sisters with our King. That's what God is doing. But if we don't read it in context, then we will spend our lives being frustrated. We will spend, and look, I am guilty of this. Guilty, guilty, guilty <laughs> of being frustrated that God has not done what I think is for my good. Whatever that is, that God has given me a hard situation. He has not taken away my struggle. He has not given me what I think He ought to give me. And what that does, y'all, is at least a frustration. But if you read this promise in context, you will see that what God has actually promised is that He is going to conform you to the image of His Son. That that is the good that God is working for us. That God is working all things together for that good. And you just have to read the next verse, right, to get it, to read the context. If we understand that the good God wants for us is conformity to the image of His Son, then everything changes. Every trial changes, doesn't it? Because now this trial is God using it. He's working it to, to, to conform me to the image of His Son, to give me more love for my neighbor, to give me more peace in my heart, to give me more patience and endurance. He's conforming me to the image of His Son so that now I will lay down my life for, for, my, for my friends. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He laid down His life for us. And we're being conformed into His image, so now we can lay down our lives for others. That's the good that God wants for us. But you have to read the context. God has given us a powerful word in the Scripture. He has given us the ability to open this Bible and read and study for ourselves. To understand more of who God is. More of what His will is for our lives. We can understand that He's conforming us to the image of His Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so as you open the Bible, you don't have to just guess at the meaning. <laughs> 
you can study the Word. The Holy Spirit will illuminate your mind and your heart to help you understand the meaning. But you do have to do the work of reading the context, making observations, seeking the meaning, praying over it, learning the main idea, and applying it to your lives. And that's what we're going to be continuing to talk about throughout this summer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for speaking your word to us through normal human language. We don't have to have a decoder ring. We just need to read the word as it is written. And you will teach us your meaning, which is plain if we'll just read it, if we'll just remember to get into the context of it and read it for what it really is. Lord, help us not to bring our meaning into the text, but Lord, help us as we read and study the Word to really be able to examine the Scriptures, to excavate your truth and your message and your good news that it will just flow out of the Word and into our hearts and into our lives. And Lord, I pray for each person here from the youngest to the oldest that you would inspire us this summer to actually open the Bible, to read not just a verse, but a whole chapter, maybe a whole book, to really dig into your word for ourselves so that we might know you more. Lord, we love you. We need your help. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.